You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. All right, so we are in, I think, week seven now. I think I'm counting that right, of our series through Genesis. And uh, today we find ourselves at Isaac. And if you don't know the story of Isaac, uh, we're gonna tell it to you quickly today. And we're gonna build on where Brett took us last week. Didn't Brett do an amazing job last week? Can we just stop and say thank you to Brett? Man, just giving glory all over the place. So it's really good when you're out of town and you just trust the people that God has put around you. We're just so blessed here. So uh, today though, we're gonna talk about Isaac's story through a little bit different lens. Since Brett covered last week, uh, these, these promises of God, these covenants of God and, and what it meant and him on the mountain with Isaac and the whole nine yards. Since Brett covered all that, I get to take a little bit of a different angle on Isaac's story today. And uh, none more real than when I'm on vacation with my family. If you take 11 days and you get away, we literally left right after church. We got back at midnight on Friday. You take 11 days and you get away with the people you love the most, you will see the best sides of them. And you might just see some of the other sides too. And I remember when I was a little guy, I have a picture of me, and I, I'm ballparking, I was probably around eight years old. I've got my aviator sunglasses on and uh, I am at Disney World and I am wearing a frowning face. And I remember the moment because my dad was livid. They had spent a lot of money and a lot of time to take us to the happiest place on earth. You know what I'm talking about? And I was not the happiest kid on earth. We had just gotten there. They woke us up. We, you know, you're tired and stressed from travel and you're worn out. And, and I had a bad attitude. And my dad quickly let me know that that was not going to be accepted. And I don't remember exactly what he said, but I remember the moment because I remember thinking I'm in big trouble, but I was not ready to let go of my bad attitude. Nobody else has kids like this. Apparently my parents are the only ones. Well, not the only ones, because my parents' kids apparently occasionally have kids who turn out the same way. And if you travel for 11 days and you go to SeaWorld and Bush Gardens and Aquatica and Discovery Cove, apparently your kids get really tired. And then you think to yourself, you are going to have fun because I paid for you to have fun. And so when they're not having fun, it's easy to get very frustrated, right? And then you find yourself following the patterns of the generation before you. And I say this because is generational sin an absolute must? Like, is it real? Is it inevitable? Can it be broken? Now, I want to be very careful that I'm not saying that my um, dad had generational sin in that moment. But when I was a kid, maybe like you, I promised that there were certain behaviors that I would not follow of my parents. You know the behaviors I'm talking about? Like, you probably have some too. I'm not talking about chores around the house. Right? When I was a kid, my dad made me take out the trash. I remember literally saying, when I become a parent, I'm not making my kids take out the trash. Well, that went out the window real fast, all right? Because I became a parent and went, no, this is good for them to take out the trash. When you're a kid, you think like a kid. When you become an adult, you think like an adult. But some of those things you were taught as a kid, some of those certain behaviors, patterns, and you swore I'll never be like them in this way. But then when you became an adult, and you became just like it. So is generational sin real? Is it inevitable? Can it be broken? Well, I wanna take a look at a passage uh, in the Bible where we get this idea of generational sin. And throughout the message, I wanna talk a little bit about it. I'll unpack these passages as best I can and it'll eventually take us to Isaac. Let's look at the first one. This is actually in the 10 commandments, Exodus 20. And this commandment says, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. This makes sense. God's leading the Israelites out of Egypt. He's leading them into a new land and he's gonna establish for them. He alone is God. He is the only God. Well, they came out of Egypt where there were many gods and there were idols for those gods and you worship those things, whatever the, the God of the cattle or the God of the rain or the God of the whatever, the God of the Nile. And he's gonna establish, there's only one God, it's God and you're gonna worship him alone. So this, this rule makes sense, but then he says, you shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. In other words, I know I'm God, I know they're not gods, and I'm not going to allow you to go anywhere else for what you need. This is really, really powerful stuff. But the very next thing that he says is, because he's jealous, remember, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate 
Why does God have to say this really hard stuff that none of us like to hear? Welcome to Kingsway. Aren't you glad that this is what we're dealing with today? But really, if you read your Bible for very long, you come across a passage like this, you got to figure out what to do with it. Well, the first thing we need to do with that is remember the rest of the story, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. So what does this mean? Does this mean that generational sin is unavoidable? Does it mean that it's bound to happen? Does it mean God has bound it to happen? That if your parents didn't know God, didn't love God, if, you, if your parents had addictive behaviors or, or, or some traumatic moments in their life, that you are bound to repeat those same behaviors. God has bound it, third and fourth generation. Is that what it means? Let's take a look at another one real quick as we're just setting up the problem. We're not resolving it yet. Jeremiah chapter 32, many, many generations further down the road. Jeremiah 32 says, Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You show love to thousands, but bring the punishment for the parents' sins into the laps of their children after them. I wish sometimes God didn't say these things because it'd be easier if if I could just be the Joel Osteen of, you know, preaching and God is good all the time. God loves you all the time. Everything's good and rosy and happy all the time. There's nothing hard about God for us to deal with, but this is hard and everything isn't always happy all the time. And some of you came from families where you know that's the truth. That's the story. And how do I balance the tension of a good God who does this first part, right? He, he, he has an outstretched arm and he loves and he's gracious, but then also the second part, but he brings the sins of the parents into the laps of the children after them. Well, again, I want to give you an anchor. This isn't the resolution, but it's an anchor. And the rest of this passage, Jeremiah goes on in verse 17. He says, uh, I think it's maybe verse 18. Great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord Almighty. Great are your purposes and mighty are your deeds. Your eyes are open to the ways of all mankind. You reward each person according to their conduct and as their deeds deserve. A few weeks ago, I touched on this concept. And so I want to go a little deeper today. But in that message, I read to you Ezekiel. I believe it's Ezekiel chapter 25. I think it's, no, no, Ezekiel 18. Ezekiel chapter 18, where the Israelites are in captivity and they are suffering because the generations before them have sinned against God. And they're quoting this, this, this proverb. They're, they're like a song they're singing over and over and over again. Why is it our parents chewed the sour grapes and we have to drink the sour juice? It's essentially like, I don't understand. This doesn't seem right. Why are we suffering for parents' decisions? And God comes back to clear his name in Ezekiel 18. He says, no, wait, 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 wait. And then he goes, literally, illustration after illustration after illustration after illustration. If there's a godly set of parents and they have ungodly kids, I'll hold the ungodly kids accountable. But if the ungodly kids have godly kids, I'll bless them. But if the godly kids have ungodly kids, I'll hold them accountable. And he goes on over and over and over again, basically to say each generation stands on its own. But then what are we to do with these passages in Ezekiel and Jeremiah, where it looks like God is visiting this par- the sins of the parent on the children. What do we need to do with God in those moments? Maybe the question we should be asking is, how much permanent damage can a parent do in their child's life? Rachel and I, my wife, we, we love to pour into young couples whenever we get the opportunity. And uh, we recently were meeting with some young couples and... Um, a couple of the couples, I hope that's not confusing, uh, recently got pregnant and then had babies and they're super stressed. They're super anxious about what they're going to do to mess up the next generation. And one of their anxieties, I don't know anything about this. So whatever I'm about to say, if I get it wrong, give me grace. They were texting me at the last service and joking with me a little bit. Um, one of their anxieties is that if they don't get their babies in some bamboo outfit, like that they're messing up the trajectory of their children. Now, I didn't even know that a bamboo outfit was important, first of all. Apparently, I've already messed up my children. And I'm thinking to myself, a bamboo outfit sounds terrible, terrible. This does not sound pleasant, but apparently they somehow pull it down to fine fibers and make something out of it and, you know, I don't know, do some magic and sprinkle fairy dust. I don't know what they do. I don't know what it is. I I haven't even had time to go and look it up. But apparently it is all the rage on social media right now that if you are a parent and you've got to get your kid in a bamboo outfit because it's like the only thing that's allergy-free and it's super comfortable. And these parents, young parents in our church, are stressed out that they are ruining the future of their children. And before you laugh at this young generation and think how crazy they are, you weren't that far off. 
You spent a hundred and something dollars on tennis shoes for your kid so they could be cool. Or a name brand on a certain shirt. Or maybe it was a certain car because you wanted them to have a certain look or style. Or maybe it was a purse or a pair of shoes. And some of you are thinking, Pastor, you can't get that close to home now. This was funny when it was their bamboo outfit. It's not funny when you're talking about me. But the reality is we all carry this burden and this weight of, oh, I gotta set up the next generation to succeed. I can't do to them what they did to me. And before we are quick to think that this is a modern development, remember Ezekiel chapter 18 was from thousands of years ago. Each generation carries the weight of whatever happened from the generation before. And years ago, I heard this quote, so I, I, think, it was, I think it was from C.S. Lewis, but I don't even remember. So let's call it Matt Nickerson quoting somebody else out of context and making it my own. That'll be great, all right. But the quote was, each generation believes it has to fix the ills of the generation before. But if you think about that, the next generation will think the same thing. So what do we do? Can a parent really do permanent damage on a child? I was sitting on vacation. I was writing this outline for the sermon to turn in so that when I got back, everything would be ready and I could preach. And I, and I took a picture of my foot. I think I took two of them. They're on my phone because on my back left heel, but neither picture really came out good. You're like, what am I looking at? I have a scar on my back left heel. And the reason I have the scar is because when I was around three or four years old, my mom got a new bike. And on the back of the bike was like the seat, sitting area but my dad said to my mom, do not put Matt on the back of the bike. And my mom said, but he could do it. He's like the smartest, strongest three-year-old I've ever met in the world. And my dad tried to tell her. I'm glad at least 10 of you think that's funny. Anyway, my dad tried to tell her, no, this is not going to go well. He can't hold his legs out to the side long enough. But sure enough, my mom said, well, hold my beer and I'll get it done. She didn't really say that. My mom doesn't drink beer. And I remember her putting me on the back of the bike and I remember having my legs out. And I remember, my mom, my mom watches these sermons. So mom, if you're watching at home online, I don't know if I've ever told you this or not. Maybe this will relieve years of guilt. I don't know. I remember looking down and thinking to myself, because I'd heard this conversation, but I didn't understand. I was three, four years old. I remember thinking to myself, what would happen if my foot hit those spinny things? And I don't remember anything after that. I literally don't remember anything after that. But I do remember hobbling around for weeks with my foot wrapped up because at some point my foot hit the bike, made the bike fall. I don't know. I don't know. All I know is I have a massive scar on the bottom left heel of mine. So real quick, can a parent do permanent damage in a child's life? Absolutely. The <laughs> I mean, there's a reason I'm, I'm limping up here most Sundays. No, I'm just kidding. But the real scars we're talking about aren't physical. There's a guy in our church who was here for a really long time. Um, he ended up moving, and he and his brother were hunting one day, and there was a shooting accident, and his brother's gun went off and hit him in the leg, completely destroyed his leg and more. He survived. Now, the physical wounds, he'll live with those scars the rest of his life. But through a long process with Myself and also with a local Christian counselor I connected him with, he began to heal the traumas of the emotional wounds. He began to unpack things from the past. I want to be very careful. Like, uh, you know, a, a gun accidentally going off, a hunting accident, my mom maybe not making the best choice. I mean, these things are very different than let's say you came from a background where you had an alcoholic parent or a, an abusive parent. Perhaps you grew up in an environment where you were told you had to produce to be good enough. Or maybe dad thought somebody else was better for him and left the family. Or maybe mom thought her social environment was more important than you, so she wasn't around. And you carry these wounds, these traumas, these behaviors, these actions with you. And you were younger, you swore you would never turn out just like that. But here you are as an adult, and maybe as an adult with children, and you're seeing some things that you go, huh. Now let's jump into Genesis 26 now, because this is where we see Isaac. And it's really important. I'm going to try to summarize a lot of where we've been, but I don't have time to go deep into it. And part of what we're about to see from Genesis 24 to Genesis 26 is the promised son, Isaac, has come along. 
If you haven't been tracking with us, there's two characters in the story, Abram and Sarai, and their names are changed to Abraham and Sarah. So sometimes you may see it used interchangeably depending on where we are in their story. But God comes to Abram and says, you're going to be the father of many nations. Through you, all nations will be blessed. This is a promise. But what I think you see going on, what we've kind of covered up to this point, is there's this journey of faith for Abraham. There are moments where he and Sarah have complete faith and they believe and they trust, but we always see this struggling with that faith and that trust. And I think part of what Genesis is showing us is our heroes in the faith are human, just like us. They're struggling, grasping, trying to wrap their heads around it. And God keeps giving Abraham, as Brett covered so excellently last week, these visual illustrations. Abraham, you see all these stars in the sky? Your children are going to be more than that. See all these sand on the shore? Your children are going to be more than that. And Abraham's going, that's great, God, but I'm like 80. I'm 85. I'm 90. Where is it? Where's my kid? And finally, God honors that promise with Isaac. Now, I want to cover some things real quick. Here we go. Genesis chapter 24, verse 1. Abraham was now very old, and the Lord had blessed him in every way. That's just a a neat little anchor for where we're going to take you with Isaac. So literally, Abraham was a business owner. He owned lots of cattle. He owned lots of servants. He owned a lot of things, and he was blessed in every way. God's promise to him is coming true. Yes, he has physical blessings, but bigger than physical blessings. Remember, I said this two weeks ago. God told Abraham, I am your great reward. I am your shield. In other words, I am the one who will protect you. And what you need more than anything, Abraham, is not more stuff. Abraham didn't even have a home. He wandered around. What you don't need is more stuff. What you need, Abraham, is me. And when you get me, I will provide for you and I will take care of you. And as Abraham learned that lesson, he handed down that legacy to Isaac. But Isaac, just like you and I, Isaac had to choose to follow God for himself. Even though Abraham took him up on the mountain, even though Abraham was going to offer him as a sacrifice, even though we believe that it says that Abraham believed somehow that if he went up and killed his only son, as Brett talked about last week, that God could somehow give him back to him. Somehow Abraham, older in his life, had this profound faith to do such a thing. I'm not sure Abraham had that faith at 65 when God called him, but he definitely has that faith now much later in life. God has revealed to him and grown him and trusted, got him to trust him. And the same will be true for us. I hope that by the end of our days, whether we get to live to 70 or 80 or 90, I hope it's not 47, that'd be next year for me, whatever it might be, that we will be men and women of faith who with each passing year can look back and say, I trust you more. I trust you more, I trust you more. But now Isaac has to choose the same thing for himself. And it says in chapter 25, verse 11, after Abraham's death, God blessed his son Isaac, who then lived near Beer Lahai Roy. Well, why is that relevant? Well, because of what's going to happen where he lives. So we get into chapter 26, verse one, and it says this, now there was a famine in the land. Besides the previous famine in Abraham's time, And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, in Gerar. Now, when you're reading your Bible, a lot of times you can read this stuff and go, okay, random places I've never heard of. I look on a map, they're not there today. Names I don't know how to pronounce. I don't know what to do with all this. Moving on. But remember, I say this all the time. The Bible never says anything on accident. Everything the Bible tells you is telling you for a reason. So then the question is, why is it saying this? Well, in this one, we get a little clue. Now, there was a famine in the land besides the previous famine. Oh, there was a previous famine in the book of Genesis. Go all the way back to chapter 12. If you remember, God called Abram, at the time his name was Abram, and he says, I want you to leave your family, leave your home, leave everything you've ever known. Come with me to a land I will show you. I'm not even telling you where it is or what it is yet. Just start going and I'll lead you. And when we get there, I'm gonna take care of you and I'm gonna bless you. And Abram believed God and he followed him, but he didn't fully believe God because he took a lot with him. We talked about all this. And then it said in chapter 12, verse 10, and there was a famine in the land and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. Do you see it? So Genesis 26 is referring back to this moment that would have been decades beforehand. And it's just letting you know, we're about to see the same situation happen again. And the question you should have in the back of your mind is, how will Isaac handle this? See, if you remember Abram, what he does is he goes to his wife Sarai and he says, hey baby, you are smoking hot. And when the king of Egypt sees you, he's gonna kill me and take you as his own. So 
why don't we agree together? Would you do this for me, honey? And lie to him and say, you're my sister. And so he, if he takes you, he'll at least let me live. Now, I don't know how in Abram's mind this was all gonna work out. Like, I don't think he went past that. I don't think he went to that next step. Abram's trying to figure out how to make the world a safe place. Abram's trying to figure out, how do I solve the problem? What is the problem he's trying to solve? I'm gonna be killed. And if I get killed, your protection is gone. But see, that's not the story. Remember, God is promising Abram, who will become Abraham, I am your shield. I am your reward. I will protect you. I will provide for you. You don't need to manipulate and control the world around you. You don't always have to be in charge of everything. Abraham, I am gonna take care of this. And oh, by the way, Abraham does it again. Years later, in a very similar situation in a different part of town, Abraham goes to Sarah and they agree together, let's lie. And in both times, God saves Sarah, God saves Abraham. Now I'm convinced, even though the scriptures don't say it, so if I'm wrong, it's just my opinion. I'm gonna tell you up front, it's just my opinion. I believe this is a spiritual battle. What we're seeing is Genesis chapter two and three played over again. Adam and Eve, even though I've not told you everything that you're gonna need to know, when you're gonna wanna know it, do you trust me with what I have told you? And both times, Abraham does not, Trust God. That's why it's so powerful when he finally offers Isaac his one and only son on the mountain. It's like you finally see this man after decades of trying to solve the problems for himself, he's finally saying, God, I don't have to take matters in my own hands. I finally can realize and rationalize my own mind that if you ask me to call my son, somehow you're gonna bring him back to me. I don't know how, but I finally trust you. It's so powerful though, because when we come back to Genesis chapter 26, we see something. Verse two, the Lord appeared to Isaac and said, do not go down to Egypt. Remember where his daddy went, down to Egypt. Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your descendants, I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to you, sorry, to your father, Abraham. In other words, what we're about to see, and we're gonna see this more in just a moment as I read a few more verses, the blessing God gave to Abraham is now being transferred to Isaac. So everything I gave you, Abraham, I'm now giving your son. He goes on, he says, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. Sound familiar? It's exactly what God said to Abraham. And I will give them all these lands and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. There we go, all nations. Even those that don't, do not come from your blood, I will bless all nations. We know the answer to this, the resolution to this comes through Jesus Christ. But now, Isaac, will you believe the way your dad did? Will you trust me? Will you follow me on this journey? He goes on, he says, because Abraham obeyed me and did everything I required of him, keeping my commandments, my decrees, and my instructions. And we get the first part of the answer. Verse six, so Isaac stayed in Gerar. In other words, God promised him everything I gave to Abraham, I'm gonna do for you. Everything I did for him, I'm gonna do for you. So Isaac didn't go down to Egypt. He didn't run away. Okay, God, I don't know how you're gonna solve it, but you're gonna solve it. Everything is good. The child is taking the baby and leaving the bathwater. What a weird analogy. I don't know whoever thought of it, but it fits, right? Don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. All right, I'm keeping daddy's faith and I'm gonna throw out the rest. Just in the same way that dad trusted God to come to this land that God promised him and God said he took care of him, do the same thing. And then verse seven says, when the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister. And this is the moment you should go, no! Why? Maybe picture a little meme of Michael Scott. No! Okay, so what is happening here? Did you know that Genesis chapter 26 is the only chapter in all of Genesis dedicated to Isaac? Prior to this, every time Isaac is mentioned, he's mentioned in Abraham's story. After this, every time Isaac is mentioned, he's mentioned in Jacob's story. This is the one chapter dedicated to him, one chapter. And the focus of the chapter is on how he did the same thing to his wife that his daddy did to his mom. Does anybody else find that ironic? He thought the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebecca because she is beautiful. What is generational sin? Generational sin this is my definition. It's a working definition, so I reserve the right to change my mind. But it's the unhealthy patterns handed down to us by our parents. Got any? Any bitterness, judgmentalism, 
gossipy? Any addictive patterns? Any ways of handling stress? Overworking? Laziness? Underworking? Chemical addictions? Do you have any pattern where you find yourself acting in ways that are not healthy, but you don't know what to do different? And if so, perhaps the question comes up, how can I break the pattern? What do I do? So what I want to do is just for the rest of our message, that's all we're going to cover on Isaac today. We'll talk about more with Jacob and Esau a little bit next week. But what I want to do is just give you really a very, very hard, but very, very simple three-step process. And the first one is this. You've got to believe in Jesus. Because through Jesus, we see that God is for us. This is really important. If you're visiting Kingsway, you're just not sure about this Jesus guy, I get it. But see, we believe because the Bible tells us. Remember, remember kid, maybe you learned the song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. When I was a little kid, we used to be taught that song all the time. Then I became a teenager, that song lost its meaning to me because I thought, well, that's stupid. Why should I believe something just because the Bible says it? And then I came to realize that the Bible is a living, breathing document that actually communicates to me how God feels about me. So then when the Bible tells me that Jesus really was God in the flesh, that he really died on a cross for my sin, but then God didn't leave him dead, he rose him from the dead, and that he showed me that generation after generation through like Abraham and Isaac, he showed me that was always gonna be the way he resolved it so that when it happened, I would have absolute confidence that God is for me, God is with me, God loves me. But even that's not the end of the story because at the end of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he goes up to heaven, he's still alive right now and he's in heaven reigning over the earth over you and me. He's actually watching over the details of every moment of your life. He is orchestrating and organizing everything going on in your world for your good. And that is so powerful because, yeah, you can stop clapping for God. Anytime you want, you can interrupt me. I'll shut up. That's as long as I can shut up. Okay, so I want to read you a passage out of the message translation. And I almost never do this because the message translation is a really loosey-goosey translation of the actual Greek text. And oftentimes you lose things. So... But every once in a while, man, they just say it such a beautiful way. There's a guy named Peter, and Peter is one of the disciples. You may have heard of him, right? He's following Jesus. And just like Abraham, just like David, just like all these heroes of the faith, he's had to go on this journey of learning and discovering who God is. The Chosen series does a really good job of illustrating this, in my opinion. But Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1 in the message, your life is a journey. You must travel with a deep consciousness of God. It cost God plenty to get you out of that dead-end, empty-headed life you grew up in. He paid with Christ's sacred blood, you know. He died like an unblemished, sacrificial lamb, and this was no afterthought. Do you hear the power in that? The other translations, like the NIV and the ESV, these other translations that are so good, and we use them often, they say something like, um, from the patterns handed down to you by your ancestors. The whole idea here is many of us were taught a way to approach God that really is broken. It's not healthy and it's not good. But the reason we have to begin with Jesus is because he is the answer to our problem. Look at the very next thing Peter says. He says, even though it, it only has lately, like in Peter's time, it's like, even though lately, we didn't really know what God was up to, but Jesus came all of a sudden, we knew. At the end of the ages became public knowledge. God always knew he was going to do this for you. It's because of this sacrifice Messiah, whom God then raised from the dead and glorified, that you trust God, that you know you have a future in God. Isn't that powerful? It's because of Jesus, you have a future in God. So if you're out there carrying anxieties, again, I got text messages and tons of conversation with people between the services. And there's this anxiety in you about like, I don't know, can my life have meaning or can my life have purpose or can I unpack, am I bound to become just like my parents? John Mayer's song, I think it's called In the Blood, right? Will my mother always be left in me? Will my father always be left in me? Will it wash out in the water? Or will it always be in the blood? And I thought, John Mayer, I don't know if you're meeting Jesus, but what a great analogy of what we're wrestling with. Will it always be in there? Is there any hope? And through the blood of Jesus, the answer is yes, there is hope. 
the scriptures teach us that Jesus is the creator of everything. I like to picture as Jesus is taking his fingers and he's raising up mountains and he's digging out rivers and he's forming oceans. And eventually he puts little birds in the sky. I don't know exactly how he did this, but if you use his hands, it'd be super cool to imagine it, right? And he's putting stars in the sky and he's raising up trees and flowers. And then he takes Adam and he crafts him out of the dust of the earth. And he takes out of Adam's side, this rib, and he makes Eve and he's forming all this. I picture Jesus as he's doing it going, oh man, this is a beautiful story. And one day you're going to betray me. It's going to involve me giving my life for you. But I love you so much, I'm willing to do it. Because the way this reads in the Greek is, before the foundations of the world were laid, Jesus Christ was crucified. I mean, before he formed anything, he knew where the story was going. He longed to give you a hope and a future. If we don't start with trust and faith in that, then anything else he asks us to do will make no sense. But the second thing, if you come to faith in Christ, the second thing you have to do is you've got to believe that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you can overcome any temptation. You are not bound to do anything anyone ever did before you. You are not bound to do that. I have a friend who has been working through a, an addiction, I'll put it that way, and he felt compelled to sin every day. He didn't know how to stop, but he would hear these messages, he'd hear scriptures being read, and he was deeply convicted. He didn't know what to do, and he finally reached out for help. And really, if you're familiar with the 12 steps, the first thing is admitting that you have a problem, and the second thing is admitting that you can't get over it on your own. But he finally reached out for help and accepted the fact that he can't stop on his own. And as we started walking through this and helping him find freedom, he, he admitted he felt bound to sin. He'd swore for years he'd never turn out just like his family. But here he was as an adult, turning out just like his family. And he didn't know how to stop. And then he find it, started finding real freedom and it just blew his mind. Like the things that were talked about were real and they were for him. So part of it's we have to believe that we would go down into those waters. I love that. Will it wash out in the water? Is it always in the blood, right? Thank you, John Mayer, for giving us that great analogy. When we go down into those waters, we come up out of the waters. We are coming alive in Jesus Christ. We are leaving behind us the things that have plagued us beforehand. Now, that doesn't mean if you were baptized at 13 years old, you need to get rebaptized today because it didn't take the first time. What we're finding right now in America is that many people grew up in the church, maybe went to VBS, or maybe just came to church periodically. Maybe your grandparents brought you or parents every once in a while as that fit their schedule, they brought you. But what God was doing in that moment was he was planting seeds that he would later grow. And then a lot of you, as you're getting older and you're starting to have your own kids, you're starting to think for yourself, you know, I wanna raise my kids in, in a faith of some sort, but I don't know what faith, so I don't know. And somehow you end up at Kingsway. I like to joke with people when we meet them for the first time, you've got this Catholic that marries like a, a, a charismatic, or you've got a Lutheran who marries a Baptist. And I think that's Kingsway. We're the middle between Catholic and charismatic. You know, we're somewhere, somewhere in between there. We're somewhere between a Lutheran and a Baptist. We're, we're somewhere in between there. But what we find is a lot of people, they come to Kingsway and they go, I don't know what I don't know. And they start to grow in this faith that God took that little seed that he planted in you years ago. And he's starting to grow it and build something beautiful out of it. But a lot of it comes down to understanding that God didn't have a list of rules of do's and don'ts. He had a relationship where he wants to grow you as a father does his children. This is why Paul says in Galatians chapter five, so I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you will not do whatever you want. The whole idea here is God understood this was a real battle so he gave you the winning side. He put you on the winning team. He filled you with what you need. It's in you through the power of the Holy Spirit so that you can win this battle. You've gotta believe you can win the battle. But then this third point, and this is the hardest one, you've got to make repentance and forgiveness part of your redemption story. Now, what do I mean by that? I wanna approach this in two ways. Look, I don't have all the answers. If you were to live in my life and in my family for a week or so, you could probably point a finger at all the ways that uh, I know what to do and don't do it. I think that makes me a hypocrite. I hate that. I hate that I'm not perfect. 
But I will say this, I'm trying. I am truly doing my best to surrender myself to the spirit, to not gratify the sinful desires, to break the patterns of generational sin that I was handed so that my kids don't have them. Though my wife and I like to joke, whose couch do you think our kids will end up on one day? The reality is I'm not perfect, but I am holy. Because by God's grace, when he looks at me, he sees the blood of Jesus covering my sin. He doesn't see me. So part of what I wanna do is, these aren't all of them. We have some Nickerson family house rules that we wanna share with you quickly. And um, somebody had to teach these to me, and so I just thought that'd be super helpful for you. Ready? The first rule is this. This is a safe place. And what that means is we're going to deal with things in our home. We're not gonna ignore them. We're gonna call each other out when we're hurting each other. We're gonna call each other out when we're offending each other. It is very common for my wife to look at me and say, stop exasperating your children. Paul actually has to say that at one point. He says, fathers, do not exasperate your children. I don't know what she's talking about. I just think they need to get thick-skinned. I'm just joking. I'm just being funny. And they're crying in the backseat. What's the problem here? I don't understand why my kid is broken. Am I the only dad? Am I the only dad? Come on, dads, help me out here. And my wife is hitting me going, stop it. And one of our family rules is this is a safe place. We don't make fun of each other. We don't hurt each other. And when we do, we deal with it. We deal with it. Recently, I was talking to a man in our church, and he said whenever he would have a blow-up kind of moment with his dad, he never knew when the moment was over. Are we okay now? Are we not okay now? Are things resolved? And his dad would just look at him and say, hey, you want to go work on the cars? And there was this anxiety like, I, I guess it's over. I don't know. But then his dad could get mad working on the car and snap at him again. We don't want that in our home. We want to create a new pattern. So our second rule is we'll move forward when you're okay again. And as your leader, I'll decide when you're ready. It's not your decision. As they get older, they get more authority to decide that. But as you're younger, it's my call. So if you're throwing a complete fit because you don't like something, that's fine. You may need to go up to your room and calm down. You may need to do something else and calm down. We'll deal with it when you're calm. I'll decide when you're calm because you're not going to control and manipulate the situation. We're gonna trust God to handle this. Do you remember when you were a kid? Because at least this is the way it often got handled in my home, so I'm assuming that many of you are probably the same. You remember when you were a kid and you'd be crying because you were upset about something? You could have been totally wrong, it didn't matter. But your parent would look at you and say, if you don't stop crying, I'm gonna. So you had my parents, well done. I'm gonna give you something to cry about. Did that ever help you stop crying? Some of you are like, no. <laughs> and you swore, I'll never treat my kids this way until your kids started crying and you didn't know how to make it stop. So what did you say? You better stop crying or, or you did the opposite. You just didn't do anything. So what this allows us to do is say, look, we'll deal with this when you calm down. We're gonna create a new pattern, a new way. It doesn't have to do with me yelling and screaming at you when you're scared or upset or frustrated. You don't get to manipulate and control. You're not in control. I'm in control because I'm the parent. That's why I'll decide when we're ready. But then the next rule is this. There's more than enough grace in our home to overcome any of your bad moments and bad days. I say this a lot in our home, partly because I'm reminding myself. <laughs> but there's more than enough grace. And see, the way that grace works with God is when you repent, you come to him and say you're sorry, he forgives you. That's why our last rule is if you mess up, you fess up. This isn't all the rules in our home, but it's some of them because I wanna teach you a better way. I want you to think about this for a minute. If our home is a safe place and there's grace that reigns in our home and now you have a bad moment, maybe you have a bad moment because I messed up, maybe you have a bad moment because you're messing up, maybe it's both, but we're gonna deal with this. That means as the leader in the home, I have to fess up when I mess up. But then you've got to forgive me. And that's not always easy when there's power and dynamics involved. But even if not, we can't move on until it's resolved. And we can't resolve it until you repent and say you're sorry and then we forgive you. There's moments in my home where one child says they're sorry to another child and that child's like, I forgive you. And it's like, eh, your heart's not in that. We're not moving on. And all of a sudden, the person who was offended has to take a deep breath until they're ready to walk through it. See, the thing that sets the church, the body of Jesus Christ, apart from every other entity in the world is repentance and forgiveness. It's the thing not saying there aren't other things, but this is the place because we have been forgiven of so much. We forgive of so much. And that requires saying I'm sorry and that requires releasing someone of the debt they incurred. Now imagine if we were to take those same principles and apply them to our children, but also to our parents. 
What if we were to truly forgive and release our parents of the things they did that hurt us or wounded us, the patterns, the behaviors, the habits, the hurts, the hangups, whatever? What if we were to give it, and not because of the psychobabble we hear today. The psychobabble is, well, you'll just become a better person if you don't do it. No, no, no. What if we do it because Jesus did it for us? So uh, I was on this flight two Sundays back to go to Florida with my family, and I had this email of a testimony from a lady in our church. And she's here with us in the service, but I'm not going to say her name, but she gave me permission to share this. I finally got around reading this email. It's very long, and... Um, I'm on the plane and I'm crying and I'm laughing and I'm crying and I'm laughing. I'm sitting next to my eight-year-old. He's like, dad, what's wrong? I'm like, just play your video game, son. I'm okay. <laughs> but it was such a perfect illustration of this for you. She says, I grew up with a Christian mother who took my brother and me to church every Sunday. I loved Sunday school and kids' church. I loved getting dressed up in my Sunday best. Mom said grace every meal, but that was really the only mention of God outside of church on Sunday, unless there was someone dying, and then we needed to pray. Our loved ones mostly didn't get better, so I thought I didn't pray hard enough. Dad never went to church, not even to attend our kids' programs, which was a huge disappointment to me. He was active in the Masonic Lodge, and that's where all his friends were. I was sprinkled in our Methodist church at age 12 after confirmation classes. I could answer every question but I had no idea that I could have a personal relationship with Jesus. At age 14, I went away for a week of church camp. We studied the book of Luke, and for the first time, I really got who Jesus is, and I needed him as my savior. In a shelter house with a concrete floor and metal folding chairs for an altar, I accepted Jesus. I was so excited at my decision, but then the week of camp was over, and I returned home to my earthly father, who up to that point was still abusing me sexually. Within a few years, mom decided that weekends at the campground were better than attending church. And by 17, I was no longer attending church at all. My abuser didn't stop either until I turned 18. After nursing school, I stayed at home and helped care for my mother who died of cancer when I was 23. I then moved in with my boyfriend who was a lot like my dad, abusive. See the pattern? After he refused <clears throat> to leave his mistress, I left him. And sometime later was in a terrible car accident with my daughter. That was the perfect setup for work the next day because a coworker listened to my story of my accident and then invited me to church, Kingsway. I had a lot of excuses that I didn't have any clothes that fit. My baby was 10 weeks old. My postpartum body wouldn't fit my sweat, except for sweatpants and jeans. My friend agreed to meet me at the Welcome Center in jeans, so I agreed. I don't remember the content of that first sermon, just that I cried all the way through it. I also discovered that no one at Kingsway cared that I was wearing jeans. The second Sunday, I was greeted by other members and invited to lunch. That was March 1996. August 4th, 1996 would have been my sixth wedding anniversary. I was baptized that day by immersion, and I now celebrate that day as my spiritual birthday instead of the day I mourn the loss of my marriage. Kingsway is a wonderful place to raise my daughter. I baptized her on March 1st, 2003. Best wet hug ever complete with singing Amazing Grace afterward. Fast forward to June 2008, and our former associate pastor, Sean Tully, preached a Father's Day sermon where he talked about those who were no longer in contact with their earthly fathers and how one phone call might be a first step that needed to be taken. I knew that the Holy Spirit was talking to me, and I argued with him all the way home. Finally, I gave up, and I called my dad. We hadn't talked in years. We had a really good 20-minute conversation, and this started us rebuilding our relationship. I was able to set good boundaries as some of his behaviors hadn't changed, and my daughter was now 13. A year and a half later, shortly before Thanksgiving, I got the call that dad had a heart attack. He ended up with a quadruple bypass surgery. He did well with surgery and was home for Thanksgiving dinner, which I cooked at his house. After dinner, I knew he wanted and he needed help with a bath. I had hoped my brother would help, but he made a run for it the second he swallowed his last bite of dinner. I had argued with God the whole hour and 45 minute drive to dad's house that I could not, would not, no way help dad with a bath. God wasn't letting me off the hook. 
Chris Tomlin's I Will Follow You played at least three times during that drive. Finally, what I heard from the Spirit was, you are not doing this alone. I relented. I followed Dad into the bathroom, the same bathroom where a lot of awful things took place. My daughter was at her dad's house for the holiday, so we were alone. This is where I added the disclaimer that I do not recommend being alone or maybe even even contacting your abuser. I'm just sharing my story. I'm not recommending that everybody follow in my footsteps. This is Matt now, is not the person. I also want you to not be afraid to reach out. This is why we're here as a church. Look, I don't have all the answers. But myself and Linda and our care pastor and others on staff, we would love to come alongside you, hear your story, at least offer wisdom from years of experience. All right, back to the story. As dad was getting into the shower chair, he kept saying, don't let me fall. He was an ill, frail, 78-year-old man, and he was very afraid. Not at all the picture of the man who hurt me. In that moment, I prayed a bold prayer. I said, Lord, I know that you love my dad. If you really want me to go through with this, you've got to show me how you see him. And he did. I saw the wounded soul who was afraid of dying and afraid that he was unforgivable. By the time I was done, I needed a towel to wipe the tears from my face. After he was dressed, we were sitting in the living room and he said, so I guess you weren't abused too bad growing up. I was immediately enraged. Everything in me wanted to yell and scream and let out decades of hurt. But the Holy Spirit convicted me to be silent and to tell him I have forgiven him. So we sat in silence for a bit. And I was finally able to look him in the eye and honestly say, Dad, I forgave you for everything a long time ago. No fireworks, no fanfare, just tears in an old man's eyes and a woman's soul set free by the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. One month later, we learned that dad had terminal lung cancer. I did my best to be love to him as if Jesus were there. I wanted desperately for him to believe. I was often super hard with his outbursts and my flashbacks and nightmares. There were days I wanted to quit and never go back, but God kept encouraging me and I wouldn't, and he wouldn't let me off the hook. My brother helped out a lot at that point, so I only went two or three days a week, but during that time, I finally had a daddy. As he started learning who I was and even expressing pride in my accomplishments, the sicker he got, the more anxious I got that he would not make a decision for Christ. And finally, one day, one day, I referenced the thief on the cross next to Jesus. And I said, Dad, all you have to do is tell Jesus you want him as your savior. He will take care of the rest. Three weeks later, Dad died. The hospice nurse said she went to check on him and thought he was actively dying. She asked him if he needed anything, and he told her, no, it's all been taken care of. When she came back five minutes later after calling us to come in, he had died with a smile on his face. Ever since, I have hope that somewhere in this time, my dad accepted Jesus as a savior. I wish I knew for sure, but no matter what, I trust my heavenly father fully. I know I did what he asked me to do, and I know I showed my dad God's love. All of this came up because recently I went on a mission trip with Kingsway and I found out that I was not alone. There are others in our midst who were abused by loved ones for years as well. God used my story of forgiveness to both further heal me and to shine a light to others about paths they may need to travel as well. Look, I don't know where this message lands, but I do know that God desires a new path for you. And that path always begins with a decision, a moment in time where you say, no more, this stops here. I am the generation that draws the line in the sand and says, this stops here. Why can't that be you? Why can't that be today? What we're gonna do is we're gonna go into communion time right now. And during communion, don't take your communion cups out yet, hang on. During communion, I just want you to do this one thing. I just want you to talk to God 
and say, God, because of this bread and because of this juice, I have been forgiven of much and I want to forgive of much. So God, what do I need to draw a line in the sand? What do I need to release? And where do I need to seek forgiveness from others? Because it's a safe place, right? So what I want you to do is in front of you, there's a pink card. If you're in the first row, you'll find it underneath you. I just want you to take out that pink card. And if you have a pen or pencil, if not, there's some provided. And I just want you to write down on that card, whatever it is that God is calling you to leave behind today. We're gonna sing two songs and when we're done singing, I just want you to take your card, you fold it in half, you'll find tables. There's two up top, there's two in the back and there's two in the sides so they have candles on them. You're just gonna take that pink card and drop it in a black container and there's a basket there and on the basket is just a tiny anchor. I just want you to take that anchor with you. You're making a trade. Why an anchor? Because you're anchoring your heart to Jesus. You're tethering your heart to Jesus and who he is and his identity over you. This doesn't have to be you anymore. So when you take that with you, you can put it on a necklace or put it in your car or put it in your bathroom sink or wherever. It's a visual reminder to you that God has given me a new name also. I'm gonna start a prayer and I'll hand it to you. Take your communion, hear from the Lord and then respond whenever you are ready. In the middle of communion, in the middle of our song, after the service. But don't leave today without making a decision. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I just thank you for Jesus and the story that he's writing in our lives. God, I thank you for the countless amounts of people in the last service who responded. I thank you, God, for new beginnings because your mercy is new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, oh God. Lord, let us be the generation that hands on a new legacy of blessing to the next generation. Through our faith in Jesus Christ, God, write a new story in us. In Jesus' name.